Welcome to the latest edition of At The Flicks, your one-stop shop for movie news, interviews and reviews. In our mid-month show, we talk to New Zealand writer-director Steph Harris about his latest film, the very impressive thriller Blue Moon. After that, we have another exclusive in our movie news section as we report on our set visit to watch the filming of the drama Falkland Square. Greetings and salutations. My name is Jeff, and my main cinema interests are political and horror movies. Hi, my name is Graham, and my main cinema interests are sci-fi and comic book movies. Hi, my name is Neil, and I just like films. Unless Jeff recommends it as a thriller or a drama, I know to my cost that he means horror. Jeff, how are things, mate? You're looking a bit down. <laughs> Didn't you enjoy our team holiday? Do you know what I did, Graham? I enjoyed that time away. I especially enjoyed burying Neil's bucket and spade on the beach <laughs> so he couldn't find them. And let's not forget, you setting fire to my Marvel comics, you bastard. He deserves feeling down after that. OK, I'm going to hate myself for asking. Jeff, what is the problem? Don't you two read the newspapers? No. no. Well, you should. There's more to life than Marvel Comics and Sandcastles. <laughs> no, there's not. <laughs> not sure, really. In the past few weeks, Orangeman has come up with an outlandish plan for stopping hurricanes by dropping nukes into them and now talks about a Star Wars for real as he weaponizes space. It won't be long before the floppy-haired one wakes up and starts copying him. Honestly, the real world is starting to become like those science fiction films you like so much, Graham. It's a cesspool, guys. As long as it stays more Geostorm. Nice one, Gerard. <laughs> and I don't mean that at all. Yeah, you do. You no, do. I don't. Gerard, great movie. No, I don't. A terrible movie. Anyway, as long as it stays more Geostorm and less 1984, I'll be happy. Don't worry, there's no chance he could take over the films I like. Oh, wait, he has. I'd forgotten about The Lying King. <laughs> Actually, that was pretty good for you, Neil. Thank you very much. OK, enough with the sulks and bickering. Focus on the show, guys. To cheer everyone up after that intro, I can reveal to you that we have an embarrassment of riches to come over the next few months. Interviews with a number of film people, catch up with old friends returning to the show... More on films we have been tracking through their creative process and some surprises that we can't reveal at the moment, except to say, I think you'll be entertained. Some great things there. How are our downloads looking, Graham? What are the top five countries? Right, OK, well, for the last 90 days, uh, the UK is at number one. I don't think that's something we say very often, with 54% of our downloads then in second place is the United States. 29% of our listeners are in the United States. Then we've got the Netherlands with 3%. That's over 100 downloads in the last 90 days. Way to go, guys, in the Netherlands. Can we go there after Brexit, please, guys? <laughs> Can, will you take us in? Refugees. <laughs> you might be closer with number four, Ireland with 1%, and then Belgium with 1%, and then 10% of our listeners are in the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, our biggest growth is in Australia, Brazil, Mexico, South Africa, and Norway. Thanks, Jacob. 
and a load of my old World of Warcraft friends in Norway. Thanks for <laughs> supporting the show. Is that like heavy metal World of Warcraft? That's, yeah, that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course, it. Jeff. Yeah. yeah. Go. Oh, okay. Oh, old man. Old man, yeah. Fantastic. Now let's look at the immediate future and the delights to come in this show. So let's get straight on to our first feature. Let's have some mood music to set up our talk with Steph Harris about his film Blue Moon. One of the films in contention at this month's Spirit of Independence Film Festival in Sheffield is an atmospheric New Zealand thriller called Blue Moon. Your At The Flicks team have been very fortunate in seeing this film in advance. We are delighted to reveal that it is an absolute treat. In addition to having an advanced screening of Blue Moon, we were also very fortunate to speak to its writer, director and producer, Stephen Harris. Don't worry if you haven't seen the film as yet, because we do not have any spoilers in the upcoming interview. The only plot details discussed are those shown in the trailer. Over to Jeff to introduce Steph from Steph's home in New Zealand. Hello and welcome to a very special interview from your At The Flicks team. Today we are joined, all the way from New Zealand, by writer-director Steph Harris. Steph has a production company called Dark Horse Films, and their latest feature is the excellent Blue Moon, which we're going to talk about now. Hi, Steph, and welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. How are things with you this evening or morning to us? It's about nine o'clock at night. It's freezing cold over here, actually. Winter going into spring, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Right, all this does my head in. You know, he's phoning us from the future, guys. That's what worries (laughs) me. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about Blue Moon. Now, normally, at this point, I'll talk about the plot of the film. However, it has a few surprises, and I don't want to spoil them for our listeners because it really took us by surprise. So I'm afraid, Steph, I'm going to hospital pass this one and ask you to give a brief description about your film. Okay, it's a noir thriller, and it's entirely set in a single location in a single time frame. The story starts at 4.20 in the morning in in um, an all-night gas station, and it resolves itself at about five past six the same morning. I guess it's a, it's a hostage drama. The twist is that the two people, the person who is taken hostage and the, the, uh, the villain, so to speak, uh, they know each other. They went to boarding school together. In fact, they were very good friends once. So between these two guys, there's a lot of history, but they're also in a very uh, tense situation in the present moment. Tense and surprising, I think would be fair to say. So you got the idea for Blue Moon when you were on police duty late one night. Can you tell us the circumstances of what happened there? Of course, I always wanted to make a film. <laughs> and, uh, and and I knew Mark Hadlow, the lead actor, uh, and I, we were keen to make a film, and I was thinking, how can we make it happen? So I was looking for a story that, take, that could take place in a single location, be contained enough that, that we could pull it off. And yeah, it was it was it was at four twenty in the morning. I was um, my day job. I'm a police officer, 
and four twenty, I was gassing up my patrol car, and uh, and I just looked across at this at the gas station. It was lit up like a spaceship. Uh, it put me in mind of, of uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, that, that spaceship that's just the, the only thing that's lit up in the night. And I thought to myself, you know, that's a great place to, to put a story. That was my first building block. I took, I took a photo of that, of the gas station on my iPhone, and, uh, and that became the, the founding document of the film, that picture. Yeah, and I just started building the story from there. So I thought, okay, so the guys, you know, alone in the gas station all night, what would they be the most outlandish thing that could happen to him. Was that the same gas station that's used in the film? No, because the, the gas station we used in the film isn't 24 hours. Ah, right. That one closes at midnight and it opens again at five in the morning. So I was able to get the keys to it. <laughs> and the interesting thing is the owner of the gas station, when I approached him and said, look, I, I would like to make a film in your gas station, it turned out he was a, he had been a stunt driver and mechanic <laughs> in a film called Shaker Run in 1984, I think. It was one of the earliest New Zealand feature films. And he had souped up all the cars and he'd led a team of mechanics and he'd also done all the stunt driving because he's a race driver. And so he'd worn a, a long blonde wig and, <laughs> pl- and played the part of Leif Garrett and done all the driving stunts as Leif Garrett as his character. <laughs> and so when I said we're going to make a film, he, he was quite open to the idea and just threw the keys to me. Brilliant. I also cast him in the film in the part of Day Shift Dave. So, so Yeah, the guy turns up at the end, okay. So I got him back into the film industry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't think he was wearing a wig, though, at that, no, no. that one. No, no. <laughs> Shake a Run, was that? Shake a Run, yeah. Shake, yeah, because you had that yeah, and Goodbye Pork Pie. Uh, no, is it Goodbye Pork Pie? Or am I thinking of another thing? It's about the same time. Yeah. Yeah, those, those films came out about the same time. Yeah, yeah no, they were really good. I remember those um, years ago. As you were developing the film, did you use real-life cases you'd come across, or was it all fiction? It's entirely fiction, yeah. We have to I, say I've that been... for legal reasons, don't we? <laughs> 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 the real criminals are, are not not even vaguely interesting yes. uh, com- <laughs> compared to fictional criminals and and I've, I've spent years uh, writing novels writing screenplays and, and so this one was entirely um, created out of, out of my imagination and I understand the local community at Mortueka were very helpful in the making of the film could you tell us how they helped you on it that kept the budget right down for you I pushed the go button, I think I had $12,000 in the bank and, and I just said to the key people, I said, are we going to do this or not? I mean, we can keep trying to raise funds or we can make the film. We, we decided we, we'd just make the film. So we, we had, we've got a local restaurant called Toad Hall. woman who owns that is a former police officer. <laughs> she, so she did us a really good deal. What we did every night, 10 o'clock, we would go to Toad Hall to this restaurant and she would put on this uh, th- this meal. And then by 11 o'clock, we'd float down to the gas station and try and get the night person to um, to finish early <laughs> so we'd get started. <laughs> we'd get our, get our lights in place and and, uh, and we'd normally get them out the door by about 11.30 and get, get rolling because we only had, we only had that five hours a night Ange that, that did that catering for us at, at a very good rate. We had another person gave up their uh, home. They were going on holiday. 
and they had a nice big six-bedroom house with a swimming pool and, and, a, and a vineyard and um, she donated the house so put the actors in there for the week yeah wow a security company donated the, the safe and, and the security van we had uh, the local Vodafone shop gave us the, the phones to use yeah we, we just borrowed a lot, a lot of bits and pieces um, from different people the computer shop uh, gave us all the hard drives for, for cost so that was great yeah we, we tried to try not to pay full, full price for anything if we could get away with it and um, what about there are some sequences outside the gas station. Were you able to block the streets off for those? Or just film it as it was, because it was so early in the morning anyway? No, we didn't block any, any roads, because the gas station was closed. But we, once we turned the lights on, it looked like it was open. So we, we did have people ready to sort of flag down any cars that tried to come on the forecourt. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, move them along. There is actually a 24-hour station about a kilometre further along the road so we just direct them down there but no that's it so so we, we had the the space to ourselves and, and just the passing traffic we uh, we just t- took potluck with whatever was passing some of it was good it's, sometimes we'd have have like a milk tanker would come in just at the right time <laughs> to, to look quite good for us yeah you mentioned in your summary it takes place between 20 past four in the morning until about five past six in the morning that's almost real time in the film. That caused you any continuity problems when you were editing? That was my it was my intention. By filming in near enough real time, I started the film very, very slowly. It was a bit of a risk <laughs> because we would just follow the main character Horace and he's cleaning the toilets and he's you know, he's counting the till receipts and he's got all he's just doing all mopping up the floor and doing all the things that he has to do on, on the night shift. The idea of this was to try to get the audience to just slow down to this pace of reality. Yeah. yeah. And then what well, is intended to feel like it's very, very real, but then the events start escalating. It's to make the audience feel that, that this is really happening. I also hoped that it would uh, help us with continuity um, because, <laughs> you know, if, if you rip a shirt in scene one and you sh- shoot scene two next, that rip should, it's allowed to be there. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, but it didn't. It didn't really work out like that because we did shop and change a few scenes around and confused ourselves. Particularly because a lot of the crew wasn't used to night shift, so with some pretty tired people, yeah, there were there were challenges with continuity. And that continuity, and as you say, that slow pace. One of the things I always find with films that deal with, if you like, criminal events. I'm trying to be very careful not to give anything away here. Is there comes a point where you think, if you just picked up the phone and speak to the police, it's all, it's game over. But you very carefully, in that first section of the film, the first act, you fully understand why Horace can't phone the police. And and it just makes it more believable, and you go with it totally. Yes, yeah, that, that was the, the intention, to, to show that he he was trapped and he had no option but to find his own way out of that, out of his uh, predicament. That's one of the things that I wanted to have in the film was is Horace working very hard all the time. He would have a problem and then he would try and dig himself out of that and then he'd have a worse problem and he'd try to get around that one and it would just kept escalating throughout the story. So when you were scripting that, and so, I mean, I, I read somewhere it took you what, 12 months to get to the script, to the, to the stage you really were happy with, that you must have hit some 
interesting little roadblocks there along the way. You've got to this stage. How do I get from stage A to stage B? Did that cause you any issues in the scripting? Because you've resolved them all uh, brilliantly. Yeah. Yeah. So I started with, with an eight-page outline, which I showed to the actors and, and, and my cinematographer, Ryan, and, once, and those guys committed on the strength of that. They said, yes, we'll do it. Within a month, I, I did a full draft. And then every month, I, I, I did a, a further draft and further draft. And, and, and I just just started weaving more things into the story and, and beefing it up as, as it went along. Right up until the month before shooting, I, 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 I added quite a big element to, to it that nobody else had the up-to-date script except me. But uh, so... On, on uh, set, everyone was working from one script, and I had I had the latest one. And, and let's talk about that sort of filming and on set. Now, you mentioned earlier that you, know, you took a picture in that gas station on your iPhone. The one I used to first take the picture was my police iPhone. Ah, right. And that's got everything. <laughs> everything's shut down and, and locked off on that. It's the same model. Uh, iPhone Seven Plus is what we used, and we had three of them. We'd be shooting with one, then we'd have another one being having footage downloaded and a third one in reserve so that we could just keep rotating them for the battery life. Did that cause you any issues or did it all go swimmingly? That went swimmingly. We had some guys from Filmic Pro here with us. They just happened to, to be here from, from America visiting and uh, and they came on set and they gave us the advice to, to strip every app off the phone that wasn't to do with the camera. We got everything off there that seemed to make it camera perform really well. We had no battery issues whatsoever. Uh, from my point of view, that, that filming it on an iPhone gave a, a wonderful effect to the film itself in that it had that sort of otherworldly feel. So inside the shop, everything was super, super bright and very flat. And it's just like when you get off a long motorway drive in the middle of the night and you go into one of those petrol stations, you know, your eyes take a few minutes to adjust to the brightness. And I thought you captured that really, really well. And it kept you slightly off kilter. I was watching it with my wife in a sort of a normal darkened room and the television was so bright from the way you'd filmed it. And I thought, this is really clever the way they've shot this. I was very impressed. See, here's the thing. We, we shot the film in, in just 30 hours. <laughs> so so I, I said to, to Ryan, the cin- cinematographer, we, we, we are not going to have time to light this. We've got the very bright overhead fluorescent lights in the shop, and that's going to be our lighting plan inside. Effectively, that's what it is. Coupled with that is the, the fact that it's at night. I mean, that, that's a special effect that we got for free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that worked well, especially in the opening bit where yeah. you, all you can yeah. see are the lights and there's nothing else. It's brilliant. I love worked that well, yeah. really well. It looked very, very beautiful, but it also came with. Uh, it, was, it was like filming in a house of mirrors because we had three, three out of the four walls were glass. Yeah. <laughs> it was nighttime outside. So three out of the four walls were mirrors. So we had a lot of all of our crew was lying on the floor a lot of the time. <laughs> Even the refrigerator doors were reflecting. The uh, shiny cupboards were reflecting. We got pretty good at, at looking for, for shadows and, and reflections and trying to eliminate those. But it was a, it was a nightmare, but it looked great. All that bright, brightly colored packaging and, and products and magazines on racks and all that stuff it, it's um it's qu- quite dazzling on the eye and i think that's that's how those shops are designed but it, it looked it looked great 
It reminded me a great deal of Andrew Laszlo's work in The Warriors, and I think there's no higher compliment than that because that's how to use neon and night shooting. So I think Ryan O'Rourke did a tremendous job. I was very pleased with, with what he did with and under that time pressure. And the, the thing is with the with the iPhone, it's kind of like, like shooting with a box brownie because it, you, you can't pull focus. You're a sensor, you've got this tiny sensor. And so the only thing you're left with is you've got to move your camera. I had this gimbal that's, um, that was great. That, and it basically meant that Ryan had a one-hand steady cam. So he could just glide around with this, with the tiny camera on a gimbal. Couldn't pull focus, but he could just weave in between the actors. And, and we just kept kept the camera moving the whole time, which works really well. Yes, yeah, it does. And, and, and there were also, you know, there were some of the overhead shots. And I think for your final scene, which I won't spoil, but you use a drone as well. We, yeah, we used uh, we used in fact two drones. There was one that was that was arranged ahead of time, and and that was a, a big commercial drone company uh, came to the party and, and, and said that they would get, get us this this money shot that would be great at the end of the film, and and they came and did that. Then we were in the edit, and and I still I still wanted some more high shots. I wanted I wanted high shots of the clock tower because there's a ticking clock in the story 85 minutes of the story is part of the story so but the story relies on a ticking clock and so i wanted close-up shots of the clock tower so anyway after we shot the film we were in the edit stage and i was at work and i was doing um first aid training and i was trying to resuscitate a, a plastic dummy and the guy beside me another cop he was resuscitating his plastic dummy as well and I was moaning about how I'd, I'd missed my chance to get um, these drone shots. And he said, well, I've got a drone. <laughs> and, uh, so I said, well, can you meet me at, at 4.20 at the gas station in Motueka? And so he, he drove the best part of 100 k's from, from where he's based in the middle of the night. Uh, I borrowed another police car. We met at this gas station. I, I had the keys, so I was able to turn the lights on. And this is weeks after we'd finished the film. And he got this little drone, it was tiny, and, and I sort of thought, oh, here we go, it's, it's not going to be as effective as the, as the big professional one. He unfolded the wings of this little gnat and stuck it up, and it was just amazing what it could do. And it shot uh, 4K footage, which edited in beautifully with, with what we had. It makes the film just feel like it adds a million dollars to the budget. It looks like a very effective crane shot. I've got to be honest, all of those kept in. It just gives it that bit of, a, as you say, an epic quality to it. Did you did you film the whole thing at 4K on the iPhones, or were you just doing... Uh, yes. Oh, you did? Wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the advice that we got from um, from the Filmic Pro guides. So, so they told us, strip, every, strip everything off, and, and you'll be fine to, to film it at, at 4K. Wow, and then you edited everything in 4K as well, or did you drop it down to 1080p? No, the film's finished finished to 4K. Wow. Okay. We had uh, some some lighting issues. So while we were inside the gas station, the lighting, the camera coped very well with, with the light. But when we when we went outside, that's when it got it got pretty dark pretty fast. It is a film noir, so um, <laughs> yeah. you've got yeah. big black shadows <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> But what we pumped a lot of light into that area. Because it's one location, we, we used every part of it. You've got the gas station itself, the shop area. We, we shot scenes in the office. We shot scenes in the storeroom, in the bathroom. 
around uh, the side of the building. Um, Horace goes around and feeds the cat out by the pumps. And we also, just to, just to, to make the world a little bit bigger, we created a, a little park across the road from the gas station and we actually brought some trees and park benches and a, and a telephone box in there and had lights behind them to, to make this little park area. There were, I think we had eight lights there, but it was a very simple lighting plan because they were all wired up and we had one switch, flick that at the beginning of the night, and that was the lighting. We couldn't afford to stop and, and, um, and move lights just because of our, our time constraint. So is it true that two members of your crew, one was a Hollywood sound recorder and another was an Oscar winner? Yes, that was um, a, a bit of luck, really. We were a small town here. Motueka is a town of about 7,000 people. When I announced that I was doing this thing, we were making this film, some of the locals said to me I, I needed to talk, talk to Dan Henna. Dan has a lifestyle property just outside town. When he's not doing design for Peter Jackson's films, he's one of the locals. So <laughs> I got hold of him. We went out for a, um, for a coffee. Yeah, and, and Dan um, helped me with a number of things, actually, with the uh, pyrotechnics, with, with guns, and uh, also with, I needed a, a blood squib for, for someone that gets shot. And Dan uh, went and created that for me, which which I thought was f- phenomenal, because normally on his films, he'll have about 200 people working for him, doing all the, all the various different <laughs> design jobs. But uh, he actually went out to his garage and, and got the pump from his, uh, from his boat, and uh, and some lengths of, of tubing and, and mixed up some, some blood recipe of coffee and uh, I think it was uh, food colouring and treacle <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and set me up this this blood squib which we gave to we, we had some students uh, working and, and so this got handed off to a student who who took his his responsibility very seriously that he had to operate Dan Hanna's um, blood squib. <laughs> so, and, 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 you know, the, the young guy got to meet Dan at the end and, and uh, you know, made, made that connection. Oh, that's brilliant. It's amazing the people that come out of the woodwork to help you with, with a project like this. The, the other guy was Ben Dunker, and, and Ben had been about 16 years in Hollywood doing sound recording on, on some very big pictures. And, and the last one he did was in Glorious Bastards with Quentin Tarantino. Wow. Then, wow. <laughs> yeah, and then he'd given up, given up the film industry to come to Motueka to to run a luxury lodge. So he had this luxury lodge on the edge of the Abel Tasman Park, and then he reads that some guy's making a movie. So he, Ben, tracked me down. He, he was hired on the spot. Great, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you can imagine that interview. What have you done? Oh, just that. Is it? Oh, go on, then I'll take you. <laughs> yeah, you really need a job. <laughs> Let's talk about the actors. Mark Hadlow. And Mark's been in all three of your films. This one, no petrol, no diesel. And is it the Why Mate Conspiracy? Why Matty Conspiracy? Why Matty Conspiracy, yeah. sorry. What is it about yeah. Mark that you relate to in his performances? We made our first film in 1979... Uh, it was called The Drowning Man, and I think I was 17 and Mark was 21. <laughs> he was already on television in a couple of roles. Yeah, and I, and I was shooting a Super 16 short film. And we've just sort of kept in touch over the years. I, I went away and became a policeman for a long time. Mark carried on with theatre and television, some films. 
Lord of the Rings was the latest one. Oh, and The Hobbit, The Hobbit. Yeah, periodically I'd, I would phone Mark and say, hey, look, I've got a new project. I'm going to make it in seven days with a budget of $10,000 or $15,000 or something. And he would come along for two or three days and, and be part of it. Just never stopped. We, we, we always would um, just get in touch and every, every time I had a project, I'd see how he was placed or if he was available. This, um, this story, uh, Blue Moon, I, I wrote... I tailored it around him to um, basically I wrote I wrote a part for him and then it was Mark who then contacted uh, Jed Brophy and said um, would be good for for the, for the other for the other role. No, and, and the, the combination of the two of them is tremendous. I mean, I didn't realise until after I watched it, I did some research on them that they were Dory and Nori in the Hobbit films, both Mark and Jed, and, and they just play so well t- together. Yeah, so, so quite quite a contrast for them to come off that uh, production of that magnitude <laughs> and uh, shoot shoot this uh, this one in, in six days <laughs> with uh, with no budget. They totally worked really well together, and I think I think a lot of it is both of them have done a um, a lot of theatre, and this this film is does have the feel of a stage play. They went away and got rehearsed. Then uh, there was none of the stop-start, uh, you know, turn the camera around and, and stop for an hour to lay tracks or any of that sort of thing. Basically, we were we were running hot the whole time on set. So, so that five-hour window we had each day, we, we were filming continuously. Did they ad-lib anything or, or did they just stick completely to the script? They, they, they stuck to the script. And um, my intention, the, the, the way it's written is... Yeah, it's it's very indirect. There's a lot of there's a lot of secrets, that, things that they know that the audience doesn't know. Uh, and um, because I thought if we're going to have a film that's pretty much two guys locked in a room talking, we've got to give the audience something to do. And so there's quite a lot of stuff for the audience to try to unpack and figure out. So so they sort of talk across each other. They don't answer each other. There's things that both of them know, but infuriatingly, neither one of them will say. <laughs> I like that. I mean, I could have sat there for hours just listening to the, these two guys chat. It's it's like when you catch up with people and you're there sort of listening to their past. And I just thought they, they, they played that really well. And I also liked the way the dynamics change. You know, you, you feel sympathy for one character over another initially. But that yeah. subtly changes. And, and by the end of the film, I'd completely gone the other way. You know, my sympathies with a completely different character than when I started. And it's just yes. so well played. Yeah. The, the situation is, it's a choir boys reunion. They're in their 50s and they haven't seen each other since they were teenagers. And so there's, there, there is this inevitable one-upmanship. That doesn't change with the fact that they're in a hostage situation. That that's, <laughs> They're still trying to score points off each other over stuff that happened 40 years ago. How did the fight scene go when you were filming that? Well, it's interesting because I had a, um, a, a very, very talented fight coordinator who volunteered to to um, come from Wellington to, to to help us with with the fight scene. And I thought long and hard about it, and in the end, I declined because there were two things I didn't want with with the thirty hour shoot. I didn't want the film to sort of stop the film and invest a whole lot of time in in the fight. And 
The other thing is I didn't want a Hollywood fist fight. In the Hollywood fist fight, everybody, it seems that everybody seems to be pretty good at trading punches and uh, everyone get, cops a, a crack in the jaw and then they, they punch the other guy and, and um, they seem like they're going to get the upper hand and then, and then the hero prevails. If, if I'm looking for a place to, to nip, nip out and get a cup of tea, it's normally in the fist fight because you know how that's going to go. And you can, you can get back and get, oh, yeah, okay, I see where we're up to. And I wanted this, this fight to really tell a story. Uh, so I wanted Horace to, to be completely out of his depth, but so desperate that he was going to try, try to do something he'd never done before in his life, and, and that's throw a punch. And so I wanted, I wanted him to, to look... Com, yeah, completely outclassed and for Darren to, to, to be this is just another day at the office <laughs> and, uh, so the story that, that I was telling with the fight was it was completely one-sided the heroism of Horace was that he gets he's, he's hopeless he gets beaten soundly beaten and then he drags himself to his feet and has another go and, and gets, gets knocked over instantly again it's a really clumsy knock down drag out fight but it's it really tells a story yeah yeah and as you say it's quite realistic in, in the way that that so a fight like that would go yeah and and, it, and it's a bit ridiculous you know you, you know in a real fight people wind up for a big punch and then they, they slip over because they haven't they've got their feet together yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, they're not standing properly <laughs> and i imagine usually in your line of work most of them are drunk before they've even started yeah very seldom do you see people that really know what they're doing and yeah. um it was, it was important that Horace d- didn't have a clue what he was doing and, and that the result is what would happen. We're, we're missing out um, Olivia now, who plays Mark's daughter. Is that really Mark's yes. daughter in real life? It, it really is. <laughs> we made our first film many years ago and uh, our daughters were born at the same time, so I've known Olivia all, all her life. And uh, we, we auditioned a lot of people for the role. Mark said that she had been doing a little bit of theatre and you know, might be persuaded. So we, um, we auditioned her and, yeah, she was just spot on. There was no point looking at anyone else after, after we'd seen Olivia. I really liked the way she was quite smug with her father yes. about the, the GPS and tracking. And I thought, yeah, I've got a daughter like that. Yeah, that's so believable. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, Dad, this is how you do, do it. Do it, yeah. yeah. But also the way she showed fear at the end yes. when she realises what the situation is, I thought was, was yeah. very effectively put across. Is it true that all the police shown in the film are real officers? And did they have a blast making it? <laughs> they, they, they are, they, and, the, and they were all sort of roped in against their will a little bit. But, um, <laughs> they all enjoyed it. The an interesting story. The the guy at at the end, the the sergeant. Now my plan for for him, I thought. So I got police officers. I needed to keep their um, dialogue very limited or, or avoid it, avoid dialogue if I could. And so my plan was to have this the sergeant walk into the gas station. I would film him from outside, and and I'd just have like this little almost a shadow theatre, so we'd look through the glass and we wouldn't hear what was being said, but um, Horace and the policeman would be talking and we know what we know what was being asked, but you wouldn't hear the words. And, and that was my way of sort of getting around uh, an inexperienced actor. So I could say to the, say to the, the, 
police officer, Belly, his name is, I could say to him, don't worry, there's no sound, you're, you're in the clear, you just, just, just go and ask the following questions and then walk out. So, so he did that. But Horace, Mark, he had his microphone on. And when, in the edit, when we saw what, um, what Belly said, it was so good. <laughs> we had to change the plan and use the sound. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he was uh, he was sort of dragged dragged into a speaking part without his knowledge. Um, <laughs> was he happy he with it when he found out? Yes. Yeah. Well, once he heard it, because yeah, he delivers one of the funniest uh, yes. lines in the film, uh, completely ad lib actually, because we didn't think we were going to use his his sound. So, yeah. So that was great. As I said, and we've taken up a lot of your time so far. But as I said at the beginning. I really liked the film as a team. We all liked the film. And I thought it had a lot of elements of Coen Brother films like Blood Simple and Fargo. You know, a situation starts and quickly goes out of control. That was reflected in Tane Upton Beatson's music, which I thought was a very yes. low-key and effective score. What, what were your thoughts on hearing that music for the first time? Yeah, so, so uh, Tane... Um, Tane, I beg your pardon, he, I got the pronunciation Tane, wrong. yes. I'd, I'd worked with him. He, he was a very young man. He was like 18 years old when I got him to come on my first feature film, Why Magic Conspiracy? And, and Tane did, did the sound design on there. He did a very, very good job. And I've sort of kept in touch with him. And over, over the years, he's progressed really well in the film industry and been doing things at uh, Weta Workshop and uh, working with uh, Richard Taylor and... Um, I, I contacted him and, and uh, said, you know, would he like would he like to get involved in this one? And he was interested in composing the, the um, music uh, rather than doing the sound design. So, yeah, so I, I, I showed him a couple of films that, that I liked the, the music for it, and I, I just had basically had this idea of, of, a, of a string quartet. And, and yeah, and, and I referenced a couple of films that that, that had a very simple. Um, uh, string quartet composition, and um, and then I just let him go for it, and I think that's a, that's a great way to work because because he's he's an artist in his own right, and and the more freedom you, you give him, the the the, the more the, the better it'll be, and and yeah, I was just uh, stunned with what he came up with. Yeah, I'm very pleased with it. Yeah, he's he's got four tracks up on his website from the film, and uh, they're really good, really good listen. Uh, so you must have been really pleased when Blue Moon was selected for the New Zealand International Film Festival. And how did that go? Uh, I, I was, and uh, for, for a number of reasons, but <laughs> the, the main one is that being selected for the film festival unlocked the funding to, to allow me to finish the soundtrack. So, so it was uh, it was pretty important to get to get into a, into a festival to to be able to apply for funding. On a number of fronts, I was delighted to get to get into the festival, and uh, and we've been in, in a few in a couple more festivals since then. What? Which ones are they? Can you say? Yeah, we've recently found out that we've we've been selected for the Sydney SF3 Flick Fest, which is a film festival of smartphone films, uh, including short films and also uh, features. I've just I've just found out actually today. <laughs> that um, that we've um, got the best film for that. Brilliant! Wow! Congratulations! Congratulations! Yeah, yeah. So that's September fourteen uh, in Sydney, and we'll be, we'll be travelling across there to do the Q and A 
uh, at screening screening in Sydney. Cool, fantastic. Wow. That, well done. Yeah. yeah, fully deserved. Absolutely, fully yeah. deserved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was. Yeah, as I said earlier on, I was very impressed. In, really, we watch an awful lot of small short films, and this is definitely one of the best we've seen. Definitely, without a shadow of a doubt. So, any plans for it to be shown Thank in you. the UK, sir? Well, <laughs> yes. So we've got the Spirit of Independence micro-budget film festival and that's on the 14th of September it's, it's in Sheffield and that is that is a festival of films that are all, all made on, on uh, very low budgets I, I think it, I think it was £50,000 might have been £100,000 actually you're, you're well under Which, that you're well under <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah, we're well under but um, yeah so, so we're in that on 14th of September and uh, also we've got one in Saint-Tropez it's called the Saint-Tropez Antipodes Film Festival. So what's next for you and Dark Horse Films? Uh, well, <laughs> I have a number of scripts that, that I'm working on. It's an interesting thing because out of necessity, I've made these small, these films with, with small budgets and always trying to find a way to make the film seem, to seem like a big film on, on, a, on a small budget. It's interesting. I've been influenced by the Dogman '95 movement, where they um, they had all these rules of things that you can't have in a film, and, and basically what it, what it does is it forces you to, to just go make a film <laughs> because you, you you can't have very special effects and 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 uh, a lot of, a lot of extraneous equipment, and and so you by putting yourself in a in a sort of a constrained environment you're forced to think your way out of it and and so trying to think of another the low budget film that I could make I expect there'd be a role for Mark there as well will there? Who knows it, it, it depends what the, what the script is yeah I've got, I've got a couple of different scripts on, on the boil so it, it'll be a matter of, of which comes to fruition. Do you ever get time to relax? Do, you're always if you're not yeah, working as the police, you, you've got your films. Do you ever relax and watch films? And if you do, what type of films do you like? I, I, I do like uh, Coen Brother films. I, I like um, Tarantino. Yeah. Um, and and you know, the, the best piece of advice I got was was from uh, Tarantino, and he said, "If you want to succeed in the film industry, make Reservoir Dogs." <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I thought that was I thought that was great, and, and so so Blue Moon was sort of my attempt. Yeah. I thought, you know, if I could, can I take some of that attitude and essence and 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 make it make a film that is as entertaining as that? No, no, you succeeded yeah. on that yeah, one. It's definitely. definitely got a tone of Reservoir Dogs, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> and without cutting anybody's ear off. No, nobody's no. ear gets cut off. Yeah. That's, that's always a plus. When, when you um. When you have uh, no budget, you can't compete for stunts and you can't compete for with equipment. Really, the only level playing ground there is 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 to tell an emotional story about real characters. And and if you can do that, you're 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 on a level playing ground with any other filmmaker with any any imaginable budget because it's just actors telling an emotional story. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a powerful thing. Yeah, no, definitely. And as I said many times during this, and I'll reiterate it again, if you get a chance to see Blue Moon, see it. It's absolutely wonderful piece of filmmaking. Steph, we've kept you long enough. 
and it's been an absolute privilege talking to you. It deserves all the success. Congratulations again for Sydney. Yeah, thank congratulations. you. Congratulations. Well done. Thank you very much. A great guy, and as I said earlier, a thoroughly entertaining film as well. I will reveal to you a funny story about this film. Don't worry, no spoilers. Jeff and I watched it and had different views at what happened at one point. Off mic, Jeff and I discussed the sequence with Steph. It's great when you can do this with the film's creator. <laughs> so watch out for Blue Moon. It is well worth your time. Who won? I was right. Oh, that's why you mentioned it. That's why I kept quiet. (laughs) Gentlemen, time to get suited and booted for this month's movie news. Welcome to the movie news desk for this month. Hang on, there's something not right here. Where's my envelope with the news bulletin? Like the ones you two have. Ah, yeah, Neil. uh, I was going to talk to you about that. You look so tired and drawn after our recent holiday. I was finding the bloody bucket and spade. I I know. Okay. It was a joke that went too far. I know that I don't (laughs) normally do that, but that seemed to. And I think you needed more time on the golf course to recover (laughs) from your time with me. What are you saying? Well... Graham and I went off to do a set visit while you were fondling your rescue wood. (laughs) A set visit without me. Let me pause for a moment as I once again relive that Michael Collins image where I'm stranded in a capsule after you two bugger off to the moon's surface. It wasn't that far, Neil. Just the island of Portsmouth. Well, that makes it better. Shall I leave the room so you can cut down on your shame factor? (laughs) Good idea. You grab a coffee as you go if you want. Oh, and uh, can Graham and I have a cup of tea each, please? Gibson off. Oh, potty mouth. There's no <laughs> need for that sort of language. Charming. And with that, he's gone. So let's talk about an exciting set visit. On a very hot August day, I can't hear that door closed, Neil. Graham and I went to the set of Falkland Square, which we first spoke of in our July movie news. We arrived to see both the cast and crew very busy at work on a set which featured a caravan and a burger bar. Now, as I found out later, people had been coming onto the set thinking the burger bar was a fully functioning one. I'd have loved to have seen their faces when they learned the truth. For those of you that want a quick recap regarding the subject matter of Falkland Square, let's ask writer and actor Russell Myers who plays the central character, Dave Sims. I'm here with lead actor and writer, Russell Myers. Hi, Russ, how are you doing? Hi there. I'm pretty warm at the moment, because I don't know if you've seen the weather forecast, but it's baking up here in Portsmouth. And your co-star needed to be well looked after with plenty of water there, I noticed. She did. You're talking about my faithful little dog. Her real name's Maddie, but she's playing uh, Sally. And, of course, she's got a great big fur coat on in this weather. Yes. And she's finding shade wherever she can. I don't blame her. So last month, Russ, we run a movie news piece about Falkland Square. Now, as a refresher for our listeners, could you just give a very brief summary of the film and your role in it? Falkland Square is a film that is made up of an amalgam of different people's stories, so it's not any one person's story. But basically, it is about a Falklands War veteran who was caught up in the Goose Green action, which was a very short but brutal battle and he's got back to the UK with post-traumatic stress disorder subsequently 
had a very challenging life and he's ended up without his wife and kids living on the streets of Portsmouth and the story is really about whether or not his life is over or whether or not he can find a chink of light and actually make it through to the next phase of his life and so it's 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 quite a an emotional journey there are a lot of ups a lot of downs yeah. lots of twists and turns uh, but it does reflect quite a lot of society i was working on the streets as a salesman for one of the television companies a few years ago between Bognor Regis and Paul and I was working on all the high street locations selling these TV packages and there were loads of guys living on the street not just guys guys and women living on the street and I spoke to them I was having chats with them every day trying to treat them as humans I don't have a lot of money so I you yeah. occasionally buy them a cup of tea and have a chat but just try and give them a human face and what really really upset me was more than 50% of them were ex-services mm. all with different stories some had seen action in Northern Ireland some in uh, yeah, the Afghan wars uh, and some of the Falklands but basically this common theme was coming through was they were trained enormously to go into battle but they were never given any training about coming back into civilian life and so there's really no support mechanism for them so that's what really prompted me to to put pen to paper uh, and put their stories out there and and that's really interesting and, and certainly very topical. I was researching just before coming down, there was a survey done last year where they said there's over 6,000 military veterans on the streets in the UK, which is a horrific number. And as you say, for people who have done service for this country. I, I think that over 6,000 is possibly an understatement from wow. my experiences. I, yeah. I think it's much higher than that. And it's not necessarily living on the street. You know, it's people living in abject poverty, People who have not been reintegrated back into society, they really struggle to find work and maintain work and have employers that understand and give them the space to express themselves. Uh, some of the behaviour can be unpredictable. It's not deliberate, it's not personal, but of course the person on the other end receiving that moment of, of tension and release from, from the ex-service person might take it very, very badly. Yeah. It's not deliberate, it's not personal. This is the whole thing. It's something they can't control. Um, and when you do your research into post-traumatic stress disorder, you actually find out that it never leaves, it never goes. They come up with coping mechanisms to try and reduce the chance, they try and avoid situations. And this is, the, this is part of the character of, of David Sims, the person that I'm playing, as he, he, he's found that the best way of not getting into these situations is to become a loner, to avoid people, to not get himself into a stressful position. I think the numbers are probably much, much higher. Wow. And it's interesting saying about him sort of being a loner because what we've seen being done on set today is where people confront him and what happens as a, as a result of that confrontation. Uh, well, yeah, we've got, we've got to be careful that we don't give any spoilers here. No, but, that's but, right. But part, part of his journey has been that he's met another ex-serviceman who didn't see action, yeah. but he understands, you know, uh, and there's, there's again, there's another twist there uh, I suppose ultimately this story is about two middle aged men who have to learn to talk have to learn to communicate uh, and, and we look through the window on their conversations it's interesting because it becomes a film as you say about a real problem we have in society but also the lack of communication within society well, it's British stiff upper lip, isn't it? You know, we've hear it, heard it time and time again, and, and, and it's fantastic to see our society in the last four or five years and the young royals getting involved in the, in the charities and talking about mental well-being 
uh, and the issues around it and talking about their own problems and issues. And it is becoming easier in society. You do get people talk more and more about their own situation. I suffer and have suffered from significant depression. I've had to be on watch because of I got very into a very dark place at, at one point in my life. And the fact is, I can talk about it, not just to you, but to other people and, and anyone else listening out there, is that there are systems out there to help. Unfortunately, you've got to go and find them. They're not very well signposted. It's getting better. The internet has made things better. And the fact that people are generally talking about it has makes it somewhat easier. But these are challenging topics. These are challenging things yeah. and very private thoughts for people. And they're not, they don't necessarily share them with their partners. You know, these are deep, dark thoughts sometimes. And it, it's quite difficult for people to express them. But there is that little bit of light at the moment. And people are talking more and more about yeah. this situation. In the UK, there are very good websites with the NHS. And they can talk about this, you know. But go see your doctor. Try and see a professional. I think if anybody's having dark moments um, that last for longer than two weeks, everybody gets moods, good moods, bad moods, you yeah. feel very high, you feel very low, and that's absolutely normal. That's being a human being. But if you're feeling low and dark and having bad thoughts for longer than two weeks, and this is on the NHS recommendation, if it's for longer than two weeks, you need to start going and talking to a professional about your situation and start finding uh, coping mechanisms that will help you and I imagine the whole process of filmmaking, and, and you're coming at it from a number of sides as writer and star, must be very stressful. Why are you not finding it stressful? Are you finding it a release? Quite a lot of people are disparaging about actors saying, well, it's okay for you, you've just got to learn the lines and spout them back. Uh, no, it's not that easy. You've got people putting makeup on you, you've got lighting considerations, you've got sound considerations, you've got props which are always getting lost, dropped, broken. Yeah. You've got other people having different cues, you're working with other actors, and you're trying to keep it natural. You've got to remember that the written word, as we speak it as an actor, should sound unthought. Everything we've been saying at the moment is not scripted. Right. We're just talking because we've got a depth of knowledge, a passion, you've done your preparation, and we're just talking naturally. As an actor, you want the written words to come out exactly the same way, without thought, without exaggeration, at the right moment, as somebody would do it. Yeah. Now, I chose method acting as my technique so that the emotions that I'm using to express the character are actually from personal situations in my life that I'm applying to today's script. Right. And that's how it works. That, that's what methods, you know, I know a lot of people think method is about eating raw meat and all of these sorts of things. It's not. Actually, method is exactly the same as a cooking recipe. You take your individual ingredients, which are your individual experiences in life, and you then apply the method... So I take that moment, a very sad moment for my life, and I apply it and I think about that and then I react within the scene with those emotions but to the scene that's in front of me. And I think one of the things that I've seen here today and, and one of the things that helps is having a good team. And I've got to say, your people here today, it's just a great, cohesive team. It's, it's really vital. We had Miles and I, Miles, Miles Petford is the director. We sat down when we decided to complete this film and we talked about the attitudes of the people that we wanted with us. The key thing is no egos. The key recipe to success is no egos. We can have passionate discussions. 
Yeah. I believe I'm right because ABC123. No, I believe I'm right because ABC123 and, and we can we can fight that out. But at the end of the day, it's not because I know more than you or I'm better than you. It's a dispassionate conversation about a passionate topic but without ego. And everybody, all of the actors that have been selected, all of the supporting artists that have been selected, all of the crew that have been selected have all been selected for that reason, but also at the start of the film and at certain times throughout it because passions sometimes get there, yeah. especially, you know, we're up against the clock. It's warm, it's difficult, it's challenging. There have been moments where we've had some heated discussions, but we then remind ourselves, no egos, we're just trying to get the best... Yeah. picture onto the screen that we possibly can. This is all about, all the money that we put into the film is not about big salaries and all of that sort of stuff. It's all about putting the best film up onto the screen that we possibly can. And we need that from everybody and that's what everybody's giving us and that is why you're finding that attitude on set. And that's why, you know, when we put the first movie news item down, people are asking when and where can we see this film and so there's a lot of interest in it and we will keep feeding that interest until it's released. So we'd like to come back and talk to you as your post-production work continues and have a chat then as to where we are and perhaps give uh, our listeners a few more details of when eventually they'll be able to see it. Well, that would be absolutely fantastic. It was a pleasure meeting you both on set. And uh, thank you very much, everybody out there. Really lovely to speak to you. Bye. Thank you very much, Russ. As you can hear, there are some very important themes being explored in Falkland Square. The filming we watched when we arrived was very intense, although this is balanced by some heartwarming moments. Involved in these intense moments were actors Richard Stride and Kevin Horsham, during a brief break in filming, we asked Kevin about his character of Malky. And now we're joined by Mr. Kevin Horsham. Hello, Kev. How are you doing? Hello, Jeff. How are you doing? Hello. Yeah, very well. Thank you. And yourself? Yes, fine. Thank you very much. So you play a very pivotal character in this film, a character called Malky. And he's central to the journey that Dave Rust goes through in the mm. film. Mm. What drew you to that character? It was a funny story, actually. My daughter went to school with Miles's girlfriend. She also comes from Cornwall, Saltash in Cornwall. Molly got in touch with me and said, Miles is having a problem casting the, the role of Malky, so, and suggested that she get in touch, he get in touch with me. Uh, he got in touch. We arranged to meet, and I drove to Portsmouth and met Miles and Russ, and we went through the script, and, and the rest is history. So I think they liked what I did in the in the casting. So I do love the character. We did discuss this, and, and, and I said that I'm I'm not I'm not always drawn to the the pay packet, you know, to the money. Yeah. It's the story, it's the script, and if that fires me up, then I'm not really concerned what the pay is, if it's low pay or no pay. But it's got to be something that's going to uh, ignite a bit of passion. And, and with a subject such as the Falklands, you know, you, and, and it's well written and it's got a great script, there's no way I would pass the opportunity up. I mean, from what I've seen this morning, without giving any the game away, your character can be quite intense when he wants to be. Yes, yeah, yeah. He, he's meant to be... Uh, um, we talked about this in the cast, and he's a happy-go-lucky guy. You know, he's supposed to be larger than life. He can actually be a bit annoying at times because he's so bright and breezy. But he holds, he hides um, a dark sort of past as well. In that, he's had some real sadness in his life, and a lot of his 
outward sort of outward pouring of uh, of joviality and uh, the you know the congenial host is uh, is a bit fake because uh, he has a very sad past which when you see the film you'll understand where it comes from well we're getting a lot of feedback from our listeners when we did a movie news about this film so good. there's definitely a lot of interest out there yeah good it's going it's going to be nice you know russ plays a great part it's well written it's been cast lovely to work with such a great crew as well um, it has been an absolute pleasure from from start and and i hope to finish well we look forward to seeing that when it comes out next year i'm sure you'll enjoy it thank you very much thank for your you time gentlemen much, okay. no problem at thank all. you very much mate. thanks kevin earlier i mentioned about the burger bar being mistaken for a real one it seems that realism is certainly at the heart of falkland square now a few days before we arrived on set when filming was taking place in portsmouth center there was a sequence involving Dave Sims, the character, and a young tormentor. The acting was so good that passerbys came over to investigate and had to be assured by crew that this was indeed a film and no actors were being heard. Permits, I believe, had to be shown. We also spent some time talking to makeup artist Max Vanderbanks in between his applying some very effective makeup underneath Russ's eyes. He was a fascinating chap and we hope to be speaking to Max in more detail in a future podcast. Just in case you think this is a male-dominated film, we also spent some time talking to the very talented female members of the cast. First up is the young Eleanor Byrne. I am now with Eleanor Byrne, who plays the character of Ruth in the film, is that correct? Yes, Ruth is the one. So what's Ruth's role within the film Falkland Square? So she works in the burger van with Malky. They work side by side, flipping burgers every day. So she's kind of got this kind of a brother-sister relationship with Malky really going on. Um, she's not like a central role, but she's like always around. She's Yeah, in the yeah. scene that we saw shot being this morning, yeah, without yeah. giving the game away, she's very much to the defence of Malky, if ever oh, there's a Oh, a yeah, problem. yeah. And Dave, like, yeah, like 100%. She has a lot of empathy for people on the fringes of society because she herself grew up in foster care. So she's like totally for the underdog. And if anybody's trying to mess with like somebody she cares about or anything like that, she'll step it up. She's no problem telling them a piece of her mind, like basically. So am I right in assuming this is your first feature? Uh, It's my first feature film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. How are you finding it? Uh, loving it it just feels so I was just saying the other day like it feels because obviously the crew and cast are great and and Moz is great and everything it just feels very natural maybe it helps that it's being filmed outside so there's no part of it where I'm kind of going all right, okay, we're shooting now. I need to be like, like, try be anything different or anything. It's just very natural and flowing and quite relaxed in a really good way, in a professional way. So I'm loving it. Yeah, Excellent. absolutely loving it. I'm interested it. you're saying that because some of the scenes I've seen are quite intense. Oh, yeah, very intense. Yeah. It just feels like it's in real time, though. It is in real time happening, but it feels like it's just easier because you're seeing it all being played. You don't have to imagine anything. It's all just being played out there in front of you. Oftentimes with the script and what's happening, you do actually genuinely feel empathy towards it. You're like, oh, hang on, that's not okay. So how many more days have you got left on set? Uh, I have got six, seven days left on set. Yeah, so the rest of this week, then I have two days off, and then I've got one more day, which will be... So it's just so nice to have the whole week pretty much up here and all of my scenes are up here which is super like 
in the hot wedding. weather. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not complaining, like, that's fine. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I'm glad you find yeah. it relaxing in what is an intense experience, but yeah, looks amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I say, we've had a, when we run our first film news on this, a lot yeah. of li- listeners come back and said when they can see it. So th- there's definitely a lot of buzz and interest yeah, out there. Already. So the uh, subject yeah. topic is like, yeah. so important and pulls a lot of heartstrings, and it's it needs to be told. So, definitely. like, yeah. yeah. Definitely. Well, good luck with that. Thanks Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Cheers, Anna. All right, okay. best of luck. A very talented young lady who we predict will go far. The same can also be said of Heather Cairns, who has, shall we say, a less sympathetic role in the production. Heather gave a powerful performance in the scenes we saw being filmed. Thankfully, she is much more relaxed and charming in real life. So, back to the At The Flicks team. Here we are with actress Heather Cairns. How are you doing? Very well, thank you very much. Yeah. How are you? Very well, thank good, you. Good. I was watching an intense uh, couple of sequences filmed, ah, which you indeed. Were part of this morning. Look, looks looks scary to us. That's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in the film, you portray Morgan. Mm-hmm. What's Morgan's relationship to the character of Dave Sims? Well, she pretty much despises him. Frankly, everything he stands for and who he is. So she's yeah, she just wants rid really okay. um, of general. anyone (laughs) you know any any homeless person so yeah yeah, she's kind of no holds barred really for yeah getting him out there she'll go to any length so you represent authority in the film yes okay interesting enjoying it loving it (laughs) (laughs) who wouldn't (laughs) exactly exactly Uh, how many more days you've got left on set this is sadly my last day very sad yes it's been wonderful so the whole crew seem great and everything comes together as a oh, team they're just it's really good. absolutely wonderful crew everywhere all the cast and the crew it's just a tight-knit setup and uh, yeah it's gone so smoothly everyone's been so professional but a really good laugh as well so yeah. yeah wonderful project to be working on especially dealing with this heat that we've unseasonally got I know. Who would have? Yeah. Who would have thought? That's been amazing. Very much a bonus. Yeah. Right. Well, we can't keep you from your last day on set. So thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank, for you thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Take care. As the crew managed to get a little time for lunch, we were very fortunate in getting some time with the young and talented director of Falkland Square, Miles Petford. Over to Miles for his view on how things on this very organised-looking set are going. <laughs> So we're back this time with director Miles Petford. Hi, Miles, how are you doing? Not too bad, thank you. Not too bad. So how is the shoot going? <laughs> it's been going good. It's been, it's been a bit stressful, uh, but we're getting there. It's just having micro-budget, but dealing with making a feature film. It's the part of the indie filmmaking side of things, so it's going good. We're about half, well, nearly halfway there. I'm enjoying it. The crew are absolutely bang on. We're only 16 of us, and we're doing a lot for 16 people, considering we're shooting a feature film in just over three weeks. And they're working as a team. Working as a team. They are working as a team. We've had a few bickers every now and then, but there's going to be bickers with anyone that you're working with, but it's been all right, and we've kept the peace. So this is your first feature, and I imagine there must be long days. Are you managing to get any sleep at all? Honestly, the sleeping thing's been pretty tough. That's yeah. like one that, something that we've been going over, like 
pe- I don't think a lot of people understand that. There's so our core house. We basically we've got three houses. We've got one with crew, one with cast, and one with my core team, yeah. which is my DOP, my sound recorder, production designer, first AD slash producer, and then costumes also in there as well. So we always stay later and get here early. So an average day for us, we'll get on set for about. 8am so we'll leave at about half 7 get to set set up then the other people then come from the other houses when they wrap at about normally about 7pm we then have to stay to de-rig everything which is about 9pm from that we then normally go to the supermarket get all the food for the next day then go for a massive debrief then cook all the food for the set for the next day so averagely we're going to bed at about half one two every night and then back up at the seven, but that's been continuous. Like uh, people are probably thinking back home, oh, this is a load of waffle. I swear <laughs> no. down right now, no, 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 this no. is exactly what is happening. Like I'm not sure what what's already been said in the few news, but we've even had uh, a crew member actually passed out on set the other day from exhaustion. Dude. Yeah, it was pretty scary. So we had to like do a take like 30 minutes out. Uh, well, we we're about to call the paramedic, but they came around after about an hour and a half, and then we had to send them home. Because it has been really, really hardcore. Are they okay now? They're fine now, yeah. Good. They're fine. They're back up and running. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, before coming to set, I had a look at your previous film, Cole, which mm-hmm. I thought was really good, dark and atmospheric. Mm-hmm. How are you approaching Falkland Square in terms of style? So the style for me, so my biggest influence is Shane Meadows. He's a director of yeah. This Is England, Dead Man's Shoes. And that, for me, the tone's completely different, but the way that's shot... My biggest thing is a lot of people think, oh, because you're younger, because obviously I'm quite a young director at this age, and people are like, oh, younger generations want all this arty stuff. I honestly have no time for that. For my purposes, <coughs> is to tell a story. Like That's what I want to do. I don't go over the top and have, oh, let's do this bird's eye view here, let's get this side shot of him doing this action here. I like to tell a story, keep it simple, because that's the most effective. If you look at, like, the, well, for me, like the, some of the greatest films, like Back to the Future, The Goonies, The Gremlins, that isn't overcomplicated. No. You've got five-shot layout. You're telling the story. People are captivated, but then you obviously got modern films. Obviously, it turns out like Blade Runner, you need the fancy shots because that's the type of film it is. Shane Meadows, for me, he's very simplistic. He captivates the mood. The lighting's perfect. I just think he's just phenomenal. Obviously, my biggest hero, Spielberg, but this isn't on a Spielberg-level type of film. One day, <laughs> in ten years' time... From, from the intensity of what I've seen on the performances and the way it's been shot today, I think it's, it's headed in the right direction. And it's interesting to say about Shea Meadows, I remember his first film, 24-7, yeah. you know, black and white, had Bob Hoskins in it. And again, it's about a guy that's an outsider and yeah. just very, very intense... Very it striking is. film. It is, and obviously Falcon Square is obviously more heart heartwarming. So it's actually nice doing some. Like Cole was was good, and it was obviously I was I was a bit younger then as well, um, but I was more of a university project, and you know that was really hard at the time. The subject matter was someone who I knew from my hometown. For anyone listening to this, it's it's. It's a pretty dark story, but based on a true story. Of, it's based on a true story. Based on, based on a true Jesus story from my, from my hometown. That happened. That happened. Uh, obviously, twisted a little bit with the, the yeah. car and thing, but everything happened, and the only thing that didn't happen in that was the very ending. So no spoilers. Miles, what's your post-production schedule? Post-production schedule, so we've got an editor who is Australian, currently living in Canada, coming over to the UK in October, who I've seen his work, he's really, really good. So he's going to try and get a first draft to me by early January. And then obviously we're going to be going back and forth because we've got to mix the sound, and then we've then got a score that's going to be made. So I would like to have this done by potentially next June. That's what I would personally like, but 
you know, is things... Delaney Cole took me a year and a half in post because I lost an editor, gained an editor, lost a composer. I want it to be out sooner rather than later. I know there's already a potential someone who's interested to distribute the film called Red Rock Entertainment, but for me personally, I want to be doing a festival run. Yeah. Because that's where it's going to be going. And obviously, I don't know how well you guys know it, but like when you take a film to a festival... You basically go in a room and you showcase a film and whoever's sat in that room, say if you've got Warner Brothers, Netflix, BBC, they get a, a breakdown of the film. So they'll look at this and say, OK, this had 16 crew members, they did it for this amount of money in this short time and then for me that's when they're going to be like, OK, let's see what they could do if we tripled that money. That's where I would want that to go. OK, we'll look forward to that. So when your post-production's finished mm-hmm. and we're going through that festival route, can we come back and chat to you again? 100%. Percent. 100%. Obviously, the festival run is normally April, May. You have to have the film submitted by then. I've never worked with an editor who's going to be getting paid. Like, the editor at Cole wasn't getting paid. It was like a friend of a friend, so they were... It, that's why I think it was a lot of a slower process because, obviously, you're not getting paid, but because the editor's getting paid and it's yeah. an actual job as such... I think it'll be done to a timeline. Well, Miles, thank you very much for your time, and I know you're extremely busy on set, so thank you for that. Thank you for uh, speaking with me. No, no, thank you, and we look forward to catching up with you again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Cheers for that, guys. Thank you, Miles. And if you haven't seen Cole, check it out on YouTube. We will include a link to it in our show notes. After that, we watched some sequences being filmed, which we will not spoil here. All in all, a fantastic day. So thank you, Dave and Russ, for allowing us to come on set and for everyone in the cast and crew who made our day so welcoming. I agree completely and look forward to talking to Russ during the post-production process and we'll report those developments on a future show. Neil, you can come back in now. So, gentlemen, I can safely announce that's a wrap and another At The Flicks is in the can. Okay, guys, time to watch some movies for the end-of-month reviews. So it only remains for us to say... Thanks thanks for for listening listening and and goodbye. goodbye. make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website at theflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website at theflicks.uk. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.